Welcome to the Pogel Podcast. The Pogel Podcast is a new conversation from the Pogel Project that celebrates innovative educators both in and out of the classroom. You will hear about what inspired them to become teachers and how the practice of student-centered education transformed their classrooms and improved outcomes for their students. Learn how they're innovating outside of the classroom as well. Join us as we think out loud with Pogel educators, researchers, and others working to transform teaching and learning for the 21st century. Pogel stands for Process-Oriented Guided Inquiry Learning, a student-centered approach that guides students in constructing their own understanding of content and helps them develop important skills such as teamwork, communication, critical thinking, and problem-solving. Our guest today is Dr. Melissa S. Reeves. Dr. Reeves received her BS in chemistry at the University of Florida and her PhD in chemistry at Indiana University at Bloomington. She is an associate professor of chemistry at Tuskegee University, where she specializes in physical chemistry and computational chemistry. She was part of the Physical Chemistry Online Group in the early 2000s, has worked on two American Chemical Society Physical Chemistry Exam Committees, and works as part of the Process-Oriented Guided Inquiry Learning Physical Chemistry Laboratory Community. Melissa and Alex, thank you very much for being here today. And Alex, I will now pass the baton over to you. All right, I'm talking today with uh, Melissa Reeves. Melissa, is you're currently a professor at Tuskegee University in Alabama. And Tuskegee is... That's right. A, yep, it's a HBCU, historically-backed college and university. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Tuskegee is like, where you teach? Tuskegee is a small, like 3,000-student science and engineering institute, primarily. So we're not the normal small liberal arts college because about 80, 85% of our students are science and engineering majors. Um, it's about 95% African-American and it's an amazing place to be historically and culturally. It's everything that you walk by from the buildings everything has some historical background to it that stretches out and makes you feel like uh, you're not going to live up to it. Really? Oh, I mean, that's, that's interesting. So I mean, I'm, I'm trying to recall now the history for Tuskegee. It was founded in 19th century, right? Or was it? 1881 by right. Booker T. Washington. He was, um, the land was, originally donated by Lewis Adams, who was a local blacksmith, and um, Booker T moved into this tiny little shack and started teaching students on July 4th, 1881. Our most famous professor is um, George Washington Carver, who uh, in agriculture and science, and he taught chemistry and they are both buried on the grounds in front of the chapel. So you can walk by their, um, their memorials and there's a huge statue of Booker T. Washington. A lot of the buildings were built by the students with bricks they made with their own hands. So it is a national park in addition to being a university. Interesting. So, um, 
you've been teaching a little while before you started at Tuskegee, you were at Indiana University. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the differences in, you know, teaching, say at, at a large R1 institution versus, you know, this engineering school, which is also an HBCU? So at Indiana, I was there as a, they called it a part-time assistant professor, which meant I was teaching an 85% load. So Kyle was finishing up his PhD there. That's my husband. And um, so I didn't want to move on to a permanent job until he was done. And I taught, I think, two classes per semester. And one of them had 450 students in it. And the other one was smaller with about 100. And I had only gone to R1s. I went to University of Florida. I went to University of, or I went to Indiana for my PhD. And then I went to University of Minnesota for my postdoc. And then I was back at Indiana. My dad taught at Florida State. This is what I knew. And then I took the job at Tuskegee. And all of a sudden, I was at a school the size of my high school um, <laughs> with small classes. Yeah. But I did it on purpose because after teaching in Indiana and looking at what professors went through to get tenure, I knew that I wanted to have a research program, but I really wanted to know every single student in my classes. I wanted to be able to call their names. I wanted to be able to be a mentor to any student in my class, not just the three students who worked for me in research. And I knew I wanted to go back to the South because this is where I grew up. And Tuskegee fit all of those. And when I went down for the interview, the whole department had lunch together at, a, at the Chinese restaurant. And they could all sit down at the same table and have a conversation. And that had not been true at any university I had attended. <laughs> and it wasn't true at any of the other places I interviewed at. I just felt at home right away and that's nice um so clearly you you you, you wanted to connect to students um tuskegee seemed to offer you that environment so now you you're, you're going in and you're teaching in classes what say 20 30 students did that end up being you know what you thought it was going to be like i mean were, were you ready for for that when you when you first started there so the, the bad part about knowing every student and their name is they also know you really well too. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, obviously. It's HBCUs in general have a family atmosphere. Um, they are smaller and the intent is to provide a support system for all the students, whether true or not, the idea or the, you know, what, what you expect is students are not going to be, um, they're not going to have the same background as students at an R1. And it's true sometimes and not true a lot of the time. We have students from top math and science magnet schools, and we have students who come from tiny little high schools out in the middle of nowhere where they, you know, don't have textbooks. So it's just this extremely wide range of backgrounds and they come and they're in general super excited about being in at a university 
The thing that I wasn't prepared for was the way that they treated professors. Everyone called me Dr. Reeves. And I was used to the students in my big gen chem class becoming familiar and calling me Melissa. Mm -hmm. yeah. At least some group of them. And no one did that, not even the other professors. There was a level of formality about being a professor that commanded a certain amount of respect that I had never seen anywhere for anybody. <laughs> and it was, it was surprising. And so that was, that was a little odd. I also had never had students tell me exactly what was on their mind all the time. And that was also surprising, but refreshing. Um, there was just a level of honesty in interactions that I was really appreciative of. Early in your career, you got involved with some, some active learning projects uh, in the physical chemistry. Um, I know you got involved with the physical chemistry online project uh, known as PCAL. Um, I was a part of that project as well, a little bit. I started a little bit after you did. Um, what brought you into PCAL and what did it do for your students? Oh, what brought me into PCAL? Um, there was this old ChemEd listserv and uh, you could read a diet or read all these questions and answers about chemical education through your email, which was, I guess, the primary way we all communicated back then. There really wasn't much going on on the web at the time. <laughs> Right. And um, I was really fascinated with this amazing writer, Teresa Zielinski. And I don't know how I got an invite to um, a workshop that she had down at South Alabama um, for using MathCAD. But I did. And I, I want to say there was, there was a call for or a request for people who were interested through that listserv, but I'm not really sure anymore. And I went and I got to meet her in person, which I had seen her from afar at a BCCE. And I was just mm -hmm. like, oh, that's her. But I was too scared to actually go up and introduce myself. And then there I was for like al almost a week at this workshop. And she was just as amazing in person as she was in print, as you know. Yeah. And um, through that, I got I managed to get invited to PCAL and um, met all the other really cool people who were involved in that project, including yourself. Um, and I just had a lot well, of fun you. with it. Mm -hmm. um, my students did like it because they had something to do that wasn't the conventional whatever it is you do in your lecture or your lab, depending on where I was using it in that year. I think they were less enamored of communicating with people they had never met before through email because we were doing asynchronous. I don't think any of our students saw each other's faces Correct. for that unless yeah. they shared it offline. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not sure that that, I don't think the technology was ready for what we were trying to do. Yes, um, I, I would they, agree. <laughs> they got a lot out of it, but they mm -hmm. didn't get the interpersonal relationships that I think were really necessary for true collaboration. Right. Yeah. Um, 
you know, my experience with, with the PCOL experiments was they were engaging to students. And, you know, I, I think what was, what was most interesting about them was going after chemistry problems, physical chemistry problems that sort of had some context. Um, yes. And, and so I, I would imagine your students sort of, many of them being of an engineering type background sort of found that much more engaging than simply, you know, measuring an enthalpy of vaporization because we could. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There was, there was a lot of that and getting to model things that actually had a point to them, mm -hmm. right? The mathematical modeling, when you're doing that to make, to make something that matches up with that uh, pressure versus temperature line, it, why? Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as, as professors, sometimes I'm like, why? Who cares? Because <laughs> the students must learn this, right? Exactly. All right. Um, so you, you started in with PCOL, and that was actually the turn of the century. I hate to say it like that. It sounds so old. But then um, tell us a little bit about how you learned about Pogel and how you uh, sort of started transitioning into using some Pogel. So I learned about Pogel at an ACS meeting, and then I went to one of the sessions on Pogel, and I couldn't decide what I thought about it. It took a while for me to recognize that it was active learning, and I don't, I don't know what talks I went to. Uh, it's lost to the mists of time. But mm -hmm. I think that I first used the, um, the Pogel Thermo book in PCAM in fall of 08. Okay. And I had been doing problems-based uh, group learning in class before that, because a few years before that, um, I had a class that seemed to be going great. And I had worked my butt off putting together lectures that brought in real life examples to match up with quantum things. And the students were all wide-eyed and nodding and turning in their homework. And then the first exam, I got an 83, a 72, and everybody else was below 20. Oof. And I was like, you know what? I'm not lecturing anymore because I can tell you're not listening. <laughs> Let's go do this. And they were like, no. And they cried and they cried and they cried. And then they all got pretty reasonable grades by the end of class. And they stopped crying. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm not lecturing anymore because this isn't working. Right. So, so those students sort of saw how the, the benefits of, of doing something that was more inquiry-based or more, you know, Pogo-like. At least active. I At won't least... say that it was inquiry in the beginning because okay. it was more problem-based. And one of the reasons that I did that was because the only time they did anything was during the once a week problem solving session that I had. And I was like, we're just going to do this every day because this is the only time you get anything done. And the only time you seem to be learning anything. Right. So they didn't view the, the times that, that you were, so they, they would view it that they were only learning when you were lecturing to them. Is that, that this is a common thread that I, that I hear among people who, have transitioned over to some sort of active learning is that students feel like they're only learning when you're telling them stuff. Well, I think that their grades on that first, if I had started class that way, they, they might've 
pulled that off. But mm -hmm. after the first exam, there's no way they could have said that they were learning anything. Um, now, the person who got the highest grade was the most upset about this because they said, well, I did okay. It's <laughs> like, you did okay, right? but you didn't do as well as you could have. I think that the fact that they now had to do something every day instead of quietly take a little nap for an hour was bothering them. Hmm. I'll, I'll just, I'll just be honest about that. They were a little on the lazy side and did not want to engage for an hour. Right. So what generated the transition from sort of that active learning into using more organized, more structured Pogel type activities? I think the longer that I went on with it, the more I recognized that they were getting pretty good at solving the problems by practicing them, but that wasn't the same as developing conceptual understanding. And I had to admit that without additional materials and learning more about um, pedagogy, I just wasn't going to be able to pull that off without some additional external help. Mm -hmm. And we call that professional development. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> professional development. And I have, you know, it's been over 10 years since I started using Pogol and I have learned a lot, but I am nowhere near where I feel like I could be. And I, I think I've been pretty active about taking in as much information as I could and learning from these amazing people in the Pogol project. And I, I still feel like I have a long way to go. So what, when was it, was there some sort of point when you realized, you know, as you started using Pogol, um, you sort of said you needed some outside help to sort of try and devise your, your, your methodology and your strategies that you're going to use in class. Was there some point when you sort of realized, okay, this is going to work? Was this, you know, was that something that just sort of developed over time where it's like there was some, some semester, some class where it's like, okay, now I get it. Pogol PCL hmm. that you invited me to, a, okay. a, a workshop for right. Pogol PCL. That, that's Pogol Physical Chemistry Lab for those right. who right. don't know. I had been doing Pogol in my lectures for a couple of years at that point. And I went to the Pogol PCL workshop and we did the chickpea experiment with Sally facilitating. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> that was the aha moment. <laughs> I was like, huh, <laughs> that's how it works. Okay. <laughs> I can do this. Not as well as Sally, but I right. can do this. I'm sure you've come quite a long way and you're, 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 you're pretty good at that. Pretty good at it now. I, I will say that your experience is not uncommon. It's a lot of times for people that I've talked to, and this is similar to my own experience of um, looking at these materials and saying, you know, this, I, I have no idea how I'm going to use this or how my students are going to respond to this. But once you sort of watch somebody facilitate or actually as we did in the Pogo PCL workshop, basically make you go in and be a student and be facilitated, you recognize, oh, 
this is how this could work. So that's, you know, that's interesting that that was the, the spark for you. It really was. And that taught me so much about how the facilitator interacted with teams. I, I think it was at a, at a PNM actually. Um, the first one of those would have been in 2016. And I saw somebody using different things to promote the roles and the um, and process skills. Um, it was probably Renee Cole uh, doing an ellipse workshop. And I was like, oh my gosh, this makes such a big difference. Right. Using, using the roles to get students to interact in a specific way and what they, what Ellipse calls eliciting the process skills. It was really, um, I don't know, it's like a paradigm shift kind of thing. Right. It's like, right. wow, I, when, when I do it right, I am just in shock how well it works. <laughs> and if I don't prepare myself properly, then I'm always disappointed by how I didn't get them to do certain things. The way so I hoped. so you, you, you really notice the difference between when you're working on something so Pogel does require some preparation still. Oh yeah. Some people are like, Oh, Pogel. I mean, you don't have to do anything. I'm like, Pogel is so much more intensive in terms of mental preparation and setting up how you want it to work and, you know, pushing students in the class. I mean, you just really have to watch them to be able to intervene and, and you can't prepare for that because you never know what insane thing they're going to do with what you've presented them with and, you know, getting them back on track and pushing them to, to where all of a sudden they realize what's going on without you telling them. Right. It's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work ahead of time and during the class. Right. How is, how has this been received by um, your students and, and, and your colleagues at Tuskegee, particularly the students, but then also, you know, I wanted to learn a little bit about this department of yours, you know, since you were all able to sit around and have lunch when you interviewed, is it still that way? And, and uh, how are they feeling about Pogo? We have, we have lunch together a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. Our weekly seminar actually includes lunch. So oh, okay. it's not just us, it's all the seniors taking senior seminar. And we usually use about the first 10 minutes of it to chat and have announcements. It's a very collegial atmosphere and I still really enjoy it. My students, except for a few random people throughout the years have always been very appreciative of the class. I've had students in lab say, this is the first time I've ever known what I was supposed to be doing in lab. I'm like, I didn't tell them anything. <laughs> <laughs> Usually they, you know, they have a whole list of instructions of this is what you do. And they often feel more lost. And what you, so what you're saying is, in a Pogo lab, when they have less instruction, they feel like they know more about what they're doing. Is that correct? Yeah. It's okay. because they had to think about it. And in the other way, uh, you know, they have all these instructions, but none of them require them to figure out what they're doing and why. And so they, they have a completely different attitude in my lab. They, I have a hard time kicking them out of the classroom or the lab because they just get involved in a discussion and I can't get rid of them 
which is fine in the fall. In the spring, when I have another class right after that, it's a little bit more of a problem. <laughs> um, as you mentioned, you've been to a couple of Pogel National meetings. Um, you've done some more work with the uh, Pogel Project. You facilitated Pogel workshops. I think you even hosted one at Tuskegee. How has this shaped your view of Pogel and helped you 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 did indicate that you've learned quite a few things about how to do do it in your own classroom, but um, what has been part of more central part of the Pogel community done for you professionally and for your students? Well, I've learned a lot of tips um, from talking to people about everything from how you set up teams to how to grade things faster. Um, different technological tricks to, you know, taking lab reports or how to intervene with students. There's just some of the chem ed researchers in the Pogel project have so much knowledge about pedagogy and, and then practical tips about how to be in the classroom with students. So there's all of that. But on top of that, they're just really cool people. <laughs> and getting to go to a PM and work, you know, for about 10 hours in a row and then spend another three hours just talking to people is it's very renewing. And yes. it's kind of weird that this popped up sort of, I won't say it's the end of my career, but it's certainly after a whole lot of my career has gone by. It's just really great to have a, a group of people that you can call on and talk to and be friends with who have similar interests in helping their students to really learn things and not just do a job when they go into a classroom. Right. And right. I, I've also been really educated about equity and diversity issues that Surprisingly, I haven't had to grapple with that much. Um, my classroom at Tuskegee is probably the least diverse of many classrooms because a lot of semesters I've had 100% African-American females in my class. Hmm, interesting. So that's not diverse at all, but right. it's a different population from your average R1 classroom. Right. Um, but I haven't had to worry about, you know, a lot of things. And, and I, I've tried to change how I approach my students because of the discussions about diversity and equity, making me rethink different things that I say and assumptions that you make walking into the classroom about who different people are going to be. And the assumption you should make is you have no idea who they are. They could be anybody. And so, you should treat them with the open respect of you could be anybody and that's okay. Right. And not only is it okay, but it's welcome. Right. It's interesting your perspective on the lack of diversity at your institution as different from, again, other places say in the Midwest where there's a lack of diversity in the complete opposite direction. Um, so I want to uh, get back to Pogel in your department. Do other of your colleagues use Pogel and how do they view what you're doing? 
Okay. So nobody really was until I had that, we, we got a grant to add a Pogel style or at least an inquiry guided inquiry lab to a bunch of our classes. And this was my hope that after doing it, various professors would realize, wait a minute, this, when I teach this way, I get this outcome. And when I teach the other way, I get a different outcome. So we had the, a workshop at Tuskegee and 20 faculty members uh, came and did intro to Pogel and then the lab track. Now I have, uh, I think, three colleagues who are working pretty hard to have a Pogel experiment and one who's adopted it to teach Gen Chem. So even the people who haven't adopted Pogel have really worked on adopting active learning in their, in their labs. And so I've been, I've been pretty happy about that outcome and I'm going to keep, you know, nudging them in the Pogel direction. <laughs> but I've had a lot of support from my department head and my Dean. Well, that's good. That's good. Um, so um, my last question here is now, you know, as you say, I, I wouldn't say that you are nearing the end of your career. You, you still got a few more years few left more. around and, and you need to be around because I need, I continue to need help myself from computational chemistry. So you're not going anywhere. Um, but if you had to pick one thing that you've learned about teaching so far that you'd want to share with other educators, what would that one thing be? And it could be more than one, but. One thing about teaching. Yeah, that, that everybody ought to know. I guess the first thing that really moved me in this direction was recognizing when you lecture for a 50 minute lecture, how few people can pay attention to that and how few people can really absorb anything out of it. And so I, I, I can't be talking to the Pogel project people because if, if you're doing Pogel, you've already figured this out. Maybe the second thing was, okay, so we're all using teams in the classroom and still a lot of people who are doing Pogel and doing Pogel a lot have not adopted roles for their teams. They just divide them into teams and give them the activity and they can work through it. And it really makes a difference to have roles and for specific people to know, this is what I'm supposed to do today as part of this team. Well, we do it when we work as adults together, right? Somebody's in charge, somebody's taking notes, somebody's, you know, we, we divide up the work and having that teamwork and rotating it around amongst the students Allow, gives them a, a safe space to try out different behaviors when they're in, in a team. And mm -hmm. I, I really think it's important. Right. How do you, how do you uh, monitor, measure, or engage students in enforcing, okay, we're going to use roles here? How has that worked for you? Um, I've done it in a couple different ways. And all of my ways went out the window when we went to virtual and I really haven't figured it out since then, <laughs> but I used cards. So every day students got a card with that were color coded. So they knew right. which team they were on, but it had what their role was. And then a description of this is what my job is today. Right. So if things are going wrong and I learned this from Renee Cole, if things are going wrong, I can tell you 
read what your card says you're supposed to be doing right now. And okay. Renee has them read it out loud, I believe, at, at the beginning of the semester. So everybody knows exactly what they're supposed to do. And after a while, you don't have to do that because they know if I'm the manager, I have to do this. If I'm right. the recorder, I have to do this today. So okay. that's what I've done. Right. But I didn't make it up. <laughs> I got it. For, I stole it from somebody else. Right. But it has, it has worked for you. It has worked for your students. Um, and it has helped facilitate things in the classroom. It really has. Yeah. And I distributed that um, to my colleagues at Tuskegee. And I, I know they use it too. And it has helped them. Right. So, you know, I, I've asked this of a few people. So now we're, we're preparing for a, a fall semester. And, and by the time people hear this, you will already be in the fall semester. How has, you, you said you're not really sure how to do Pogel in, in the era of pandemic. Can you give us a sense of how things are going to turn out? How are things at Tuskegee right now? So upperclassmen, for the most part, have virtual classes. So they still have a class meeting time. We haven't gone to asynchronous. There's still a class meeting time, but it's going to be through Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, some of the labs have been designated as hybrid, um, but Alabama is a hot spot, and there's a lot of concern about what that's going to mean. And the first-year classes are supposed to be more in-person than the upper class. Upperclassmen don't even have to come back to campus. Mm. But the freshmen or the first years are all supposed to be in dorms. So how long that lasts? I'm a little bit skeptical because things are not going well for the people who've already come back together. Mm. Already yes. been quarantines at schools that are meeting in person. Right. So I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we, we shall see. Yes. All right. Well, Melissa, I really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with me um, and uh, share us on your journey through uh, the use of Pogel. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Alex, for asking me. And you know, <laughs> um, I can have a conversation with you anytime. Thank you very much to all of you for listening to today's conversation on the Pogel podcast. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Pogel practitioner Wayne Pearson. Please join us next time as we think out loud with Pogel educators, researchers, and others working to transform teaching and learning for the 21st century.